Hello, and welcome to the Biotech 2050 podcast. Biotech 2050 is a think tank chronicling the disruptions changing the biotech industry over the next several decades. Check out our website at biotech2050.com. I'm Rahul Chaturvedi, today's host. I'm also the founder and CEO of Clora. Clora is organizing the world's life sciences expertise and is the place to discover, build, and manage on-demand life science teams. I'm thrilled to welcome Bill Duell, CEO of Sutro Biopharma. Bill, wonderful to have you on today. Thanks very much. It's a pleasure to be with you. To start off, we'd love to learn a little bit more about your background and how you got to where you are today. Thanks. Well, you know, I'm, as you mentioned, the CEO of Sutro Biopharma, and I'm probably a bit atypical as CEOs go in that I was not trained as a scientist. In fact, I was trained to be a lawyer. I practiced corporate law for about 15 years. And then in 1998, I decided it was time for a career change. For a lot of personal reasons, I was drawn to the biotechnology industry. And I came to understand that somebody with a solid business background and a legal background could be very helpful to establishing and building companies that were working on novel therapeutics. And so in 1998, I joined this industry. And in the course of my career since then, I've had occasion to work in a number of managerial positions. And in 2009, I was asked to step in and be CEO of Sutro Biopharma. So for the last 12 years, we've been building out this really unique company. I was the 19th employee. Today, we're over 200 employees. We have a very unique and novel technology that we think allows us to make very significant improvements in the quality of cancer medicines that are delivered to patients. And I'm pleased that we have a number of programs ongoing, and we have four programs in clinical development today. So it's been quite a journey and a very fulfilling one for me to see this company really grow from the seed of an idea to a company that is actually benefiting patients. Great. Thanks, Bill. For those that are listening that are thinking about a similar pivot, how did you initially get into biotech? And you know, are there any lessons learned in terms of someone who's looking to apply their legal background to the biotech industry? That's a really interesting question. I think that when I was practicing law, I viewed myself fundamentally as a problem solver for my clients. And didn't matter what the problem was, they often had legal components to it, but they often had business components as well. And I viewed myself as an advisor to management teams on how to move their businesses forward. After 15 years of doing that, I decided that instead of advising, I wanted to see whether I had what it takes to actually take my own advice, if you will and put it to practice and see whether or not I could practice what I was preaching. So that began my long career in leadership in this industry. I think the ability to listen to people who have different ideas, the ability to assimilate that information, to draw conclusions and build bridges are all important skill sets to being successful as a leader in any organization. And I view our business, the business of science, today the business of cancer therapeutics, as a business that it's very helpful uh, if you can 
bring a problem-solving mentality to the table because you never know on any given day what problem is going to present itself. My job is to find ways to keep the company funded, to have a strategic vision that we can pursue, and to really unlock the potential of our team in terms of developing new cancer therapeutics. And you know, many of us in biotech are obviously quite drawn to the industry for its potential impact on human health. Would love to understand your own personal motivation as you work in a space where millions of Americans are, are impacted on an annual basis. Yeah, the reason that I got into this industry was exactly that. We're here you know, adjacent to Silicon Valley in the South San Francisco area. And there's a lot of exciting innovation that goes on in the tech world. Uh, I love the new gadgets that they produce. And they certainly are a great assist to me in many aspects of my life. But what we do in the biotechnology industry fundamentally affects patients and well-being and, and human health. And so when the time came for me to transition, I was drawn to this industry. In part, I was drawn to this industry because I think there continue to be amazing novel platform technologies that give science an opportunity to make a broad impact in many different ways and in many different disease states. Sometimes it's great to have discovered a single molecule that has very direct and specific application. Uh, and that's a very important aspect of what goes on in our industry. But if you have a technology that is broadly applicable, now the fun starts because you have to figure out what is this technology capable of doing? What is it not capable of doing? Once I know what it's capable of doing, I have to ask the question, what should we be doing? And why should we be doing it? And when you're asking those questions, you end up making choices. And those choices have many consequences. They have consequences as to the funding. They have consequences as to the skill sets that you're going to need. They have consequences to the diseases that you might be interested in working in. And so for me, as I've moved through my career in the industry, I've been much more attracted to platform companies because it allows for more creativity in terms of scientific innovation, in my mind. It allows for more creativity in terms of fundraising because different opportunities may appeal to different investors. It allows for more creativity in deal making because you can approach a company and there may be many aspects of what you do that could be of interest to them and you find the one that is overlapping in interest. And it allows you choices in terms of where you wanna go. And so at Sutro Biopharma, when I first joined in 2009, we were agnostic as to what we were going to work on. What we were working on at that point was our technology and it was important to answer those first two questions. What can we do and what can't we do? In 2010, late 2010, our chief scientific officer joined us, and it was then that we could start to ask the question, what should we do? And that's been an exciting journey, and now we're definitely focused in cancer, and that's for a lot of reasons. But we decided in early 2011 that we were going to focus our technology and our efforts on the development of novel next-generation cancer therapeutics. And that's the journey that we've been on since that point in time. 
And you guys have a unique platform and process. So we'd love to unpack that a little bit more on what's going on at Sutro and where things stand from a development perspective. Well, it's been quite a journey for us. Part of the reason that I was attracted to Sutro was that the technology that we have is unlike anything else in the industry. Our founder, who is a professor at Stanford, Jim Swartz, had been in industry at Genentech. And he knew a lot about how to make large molecules, antibodies in particular. And Genentech makes very many of their therapeutics in CHO cells. That's a very traditional approach to discovery and development and manufacturing of cancer therapeutics and other therapeutics as well. Jim wanted to explore a different path of discovering and making large molecules. He wanted to develop a technology around cell-free protein synthesis, sometimes known as in vitro transcription and translation. Now that's a technology and a concept that has been around for a long time. But Jim's notion was to take it from a mere lab scale, interesting from a scientific curiosity standpoint to answer a, a narrow question, to a robust technology that could manufacture next generation therapeutics in a way that has never been done before. And so the company that I joined in 2009 had begun in 2003, and we were trying to do two things at the same time. We were trying to understand what we could make and what we couldn't make. And to the extent that we couldn't make something, could we manipulate the technology platform in a way that allowed us to make eventually what we couldn't make previously? And that was a very important bit of technology building. And then the second thing that we had to do was figure out how to make these molecules at a scale that would be predictive of our ability to make clinical trial material and commercial quantities of material, because no one in the history of the industry had ever been able to achieve that. And so when I joined in 2009, we were just at the beginning of that quest. We had done a fair amount of scalability, enough to give us confidence that we could scale to a level that would allow us to manufacture under GMP conditions for both clinical development and commercial scale. And today I'm pleased to say that we now have a GMP facility in San Carlos, California, and we have made four antibody drug conjugates in that facility. And that is a remarkable feat because we're the only ones in the world who have ever made molecules like these cell-free. And we've done it with our own manufacturing capability that we've built through the years. The question that we also had to struggle with was what should we make? And we, we settled on next generation cancer therapeutics. Small sidelight story for you. My CSO, when he joined, he and I were tasked to think differently about how to use the technology platform because he was the new kid on the block. And as we were tasked with that, I said to him, Trevor, his name is Trevor Hallam, said, Trevor, we got a lot that we can do with this technology platform. I just don't think we should do cancer. So as we think about this, let's think about everything else other than cancer. And about a month <laughs> later, about a month later, he came back to me and said, Bill, I, I know you told me that we shouldn't be thinking about cancer, but I think this platform is ideally suited for cancer. And I said, okay, why do you think that? 
And that began a conversation between the two of us about where cancer therapeutics were going. Antibody drug conjugates were just starting to have their day in the sun. Biospecific antibodies were showing good promise as well. Uh, and there was a lot of other stuff going on that suggested that cancer therapeutics were going to be more complicated to make than just making an antibody. And it turned out that our platform was ideally suited to make these next generation cancer therapeutics in a way that allows us to believe that we can design a homogeneous molecule, a single species, that because of the work that we've put in in the research and preclinical development, we know is the optimal molecule the optimal single species to put into clinical development. Not a heterogeneous mixture, not something that's an average in terms of performance, where some elements of the therapeutic are competent and others are not so competent and they compete with one another. We wanted a single species. And so today, as I said, we have four antibody drug conjugates that are each single species. One is an ovarian and endometrial cancer. One is for myeloma. One is for non-Hodgkin's lymphoma and myeloma, and one is for non-small cell lung cancer and squamous cell carcinoma of the esophagus. So those are four different molecules. We've filed INDs for each of those at least one a year since 2018 and have a pipeline of other molecules that are moving forward. So I think we made the right choice to go into cancer from a business standpoint. We're now a publicly traded company valued at over a billion dollars, and we're helping a lot of patients with cancer. We have a long way to go, but we've made some significant strides over the last five years, and I'm very optimistic about the next five. Bill, that is a remarkable pace of progress over the last couple of years in terms of getting new assets into the clinic. And also, it's quite unique nowadays for companies to be responsible for end-to-end development from early stage discovery all the way through to commercial GMP manufacturing. There's obvious trade-offs associated with doing so. Would love to unpack your mental model around you know, some of those trade-offs and how folks should think about, hey, you know what, I am going to set up my own GMP facility versus going the usual CDMO route. You're right. That's a, a very difficult question to get a good answer to, although I think we're seeing more companies decide to invest in manufacturing. What's difficult about it? Well, what's difficult about it is that you're effectively owning your manufacturing capability as opposed to renting someone else's manufacturing capability. And it turns out that the costs of ownership are significant. You have many more fixed costs as well as variable costs. If you're renting, that's all variable. You can scale it up or scale it down. The difference though, when you own it and you own something that isn't fully developed is that you develop your manufacturing capability under your own control. You know, If we see something isn't working, the next day we can be doing it differently because the team has identified a different way to do something than we did the day before. If I'm working with a CDMO, I have to try and figure out what didn't work in their hands, why didn't it work, and what should we ask them to try to do differently? That is a much longer cycle time, and it's much more expensive. 
for us, the decision was relatively straightforward. When we were building our company, I knew that it was going to take hundreds of millions of dollars to finance this company because I knew that we needed to have a manufacturing capability that was believable. If you're the only ones in the world doing a certain technology process, you better be able to do it at a scale that is comforting to investors and to others that you can actually make it all the way to the finish line and have a commercial process. And so in order to persuade people that we could do that, along the way, we found a facility in San Carlos, California, that was built as a GMP facility, but was constructed in a way that was amenable to our technology process. And we found it at a very inexpensive rental price because it had been vacant for three years. And so I was able to persuade our board that we should invest in owning our own manufacturing capability rather than renting it, even though I did not have a single product to make in that facility at the time we made that decision. In fact, it would be several years from the time we made that decision to the time that we would be making something in that facility that is now the one that's produced these molecules. It's a little bit of a field of dreams story that if you build it, they will come. And what I knew is that if I told a pharmaceutical partner or a potential partner, hey, look what we can do in the lab, and they would say, okay, so how are you going to take care of manufacturing? Don't worry about that. We'll figure it out down the road. That would not be a very satisfactory answer. But if I said, here, let me show you the facility that we're actually going to make what we're trying to work on with you, it's a lot more believable that frankly, when the molecule is ready for that facility, the facility will be ready for us. And I was heartened that our partner, Celgene, believed in our ability to actually do this and made substantial investments in Sutro to enable us to build that manufacturing capability. But we had that facility moving forward, ready to make things several years before it was actually time to make something in it. But that facility unlocked business development opportunities, it unlocked capital for us. It unlocked new programs that we would not have been able to conceive of had we not had that facility. So a bit of a leap of faith, but one that's been well rewarded. And you know, our financing through our partnerships has generated almost $400 million. That facility is core to that financing execution. That must have been uh, quite the courageous decision when you made it so long ago and, and really nice to see it's been paying off. You mentioned partnerships and you know you've you've been in this industry now for obviously quite some time. How have you seen the nature of partnerships change over the last 5 to 10 years? You know, I think that there is a greater recognition today that no one company has all the knowledge and all the expertise to go from the germ of an idea of a therapeutic to the optimized product candidate at the end of the day and that there is a greater recognition of the collaborative nature of our industry and the benefits of collaboration. A greater recognition that a small company might actually be able to teach a big company something. Certainly big companies can teach small companies many things, but I think there's a greater recognition that small companies can teach big companies something. And I think what we've seen last year during the pandemic is an acceleration of the notion that we can be more impactful as an industry if we find ways to break down barriers between companies, 
and establish good synergistic collaborations. That's always been a core thesis for Sutro Biopharma. The work that we do, whether it was with Celgene, now Bristol-Myers Squibb, with Merck or with EMD Serono, or even the company we spun out, Vaxite, the work we do is very synergistic. We take what they do best. We apply our protein engineering capability to their deep understanding of cancer biology. And we're able to work in a way that generates molecules that neither one of us left to our own devices would be able to generate. So we don't do deals the way most companies do deals. We don't conceive of an asset and then to finance the company, ask who wants to co-develop this asset with us. What we do is we talk to partners like Celgene, where we said, let's work on some targets of interest to you all, where we can do some things quite rapidly that you can't do and certainly couldn't do as rapidly. And so the end product of that series of programs that we had with them is a very important BCMA targeting antibody drug conjugate, which is part of their three-modality approach to next-generation treatment of multiple myeloma. We're working with Merck on cytokine derivatives that can have important effects to amplify the immune checkpoint inhibitors uh, like Kichuta that they have. And so, again, make a, a drug that's quite good, even better potentially. And with EMD Serono, working with them in the EGFR space, but with a much more specific dual-targeted MUC1 EGFR antibody drug conjugate. So all of those things come to fruition because of the synergy between the two companies. So collaboration and a willingness to learn from each other, I think has uh, always been a hallmark of Sutro, but I think we're seeing it industry-wide being greatly recognized. We were forced into it, but I think people now understand the benefit and the value of it, and you'll see more of it in the coming years. Thanks for sharing your unique perspective on partnerships, Bill. You mentioned Vaxite and the spin-out of Vaxite from, from Sutro, so we'd love to learn a bit more about what Vaxite is up to. As a small company, you have to make some choices as to what you're going to do and, and importantly, what you're not going to do. And along the path of our coming to understand what we were good at and frankly, what we couldn't do, we explored a lot of different modalities. And one of the modalities we explored was whether our technology was amenable to making novel vaccine candidates. And we did some work with Sanofi Pasteur in the vaccine space, proof of concept stuff, but it gave us confidence that our technology platform could be very useful in making really interesting vaccine candidates. Now, I knew that we couldn't build both a cancer-focused company and a vaccine company. I was already stretching the limits of credibility as to how much capital we might be able to access. And to build two such distinct companies, I thought was a bridge too far. And so we looked for an opportunity to create a vaccine business that would be led by those who had industry experience in the vaccine sector, both business and scientific. And so about five, six years ago, we spun out a business, it was then called Sutrovax, it's now called Vaxite. And we gave them a running start by working with them collaboratively on a number of different programs. 
among the programs that we worked with them on is a next generation pneumococcal conjugate vaccine. And that was really a very exciting molecule. Prevnar is the world's leading pneumococcal conjugate vaccine, sells billions of dollars a year and protects against today 13 serotypes that can cause pneumonia. Now, there are many more serotypes that can cause pneumonia. It protects against some of the most virulent and pervasive serotypes that are out there. But there are a number of other serotypes that could be protected against with a conjugate vaccine. And so Vaxite set about creating a 24-valent pneumococcal conjugate vaccine. As they progressed their journey, and it's been a long one, but this is the equivalent of making 25 different drugs, and then all of it comes together to be your vaccine candidate. So it's not surprising that it's long and expensive and difficult. But along the way, they garnered a fair amount of venture capital, and last year were successful in their initial public offering. And so we're excited for that company. They're on the path to an IND. And sometime in the next couple of years, that vaccine candidate will enter clinical development. And we're hoping that it will prove to be as efficacious as Prevnar 13 for those 13 serotypes and will have superior efficacy to anything that's available for the 11 other serotypes. And that'll be exciting because then you have a much broader protection for people who get the vaccine. And that's not the limit of the technology. The technology is capable of making something even more protective. And Vaxite is working on that as a next generation vaccine candidate as well. So I'm thrilled that the team there has been able to take our technology platform and really take it in a completely different direction, but one that can be very impactful for human health and it's been a thrill to work with them and uh, continue to serve on their board of directors. Excellent. Thanks, Bill. It's uh, a testament to the potential of the platform that Sutro's working on. That sounds really exciting. We're obviously recording this during the pandemic via Zoom rather than you know, sitting face-to-face. Would love to touch on how you and the company have been managing through the pandemic and what's the evolution been internally at Sutro in terms of this new working environment for all of us and potential challenges that you guys have faced? You know, our industry is hard. (laughs) It's hard to do what we do. And to do what we do in the middle of a pandemic is almost unthinkable in terms of the degree of difficulty that that adds to everything that we do. I'm really proud of what our company has been able to accomplish. And there are a couple, three things I want to highlight. One is when you have earlier in 2023 drugs in clinical development, and now as I've said before, it's important that you never run out of material for those clinical trials. And we had over 20 manufacturing runs scheduled for 2020 for those three programs and the fourth one that has just begun. You can't get into the middle of a trial and a patient who's come to rely on your therapy has to be told we ran out of drugs, so you're going to miss your treatment. That's just an unacceptable answer. And so I'm really proud of our manufacturing team. They accomplished each and every manufacturing run that was scheduled for the year on time and kept drug supply flowing. And they did so by reorganizing the way they did work so that we could have enhanced safety procedures to make sure that our employees who are operating in that manufacturing facility were operating in a safe way, notwithstanding the pandemic. 
And I'm pleased that we've had no transmission of the virus within our workforce as a result of people working in our facilities. So that was a big challenge and kudos to the manufacturing team to be able to figure that out. The second thing that I'm really pleased with is that we were able to actually find ways to raise capital. You know, you alluded to how we're doing this podcast. Well, the traditional way of raising capital is to get on the road, see investors face to face, press the flesh and try and build enthusiasm for an offering. Last year, we did two follow-on offerings and raised some money using an ATM vehicle. We raised a quarter of a billion dollars in the capital markets last year in a time when I would have thought the capital markets would largely have been absent to many in biotech and the degree of difficulty would have been tremendous. From that standpoint, I'm very pleased with what uh, the team was able to accomplish because that capital fuels our clinical development. And so the third thing that I'm thrilled with is last year, we were able to maintain our substantial momentum on our lead program, our ovarian cancer program, in a way that allowed us to get a readout at the end of the year that was very exciting for ovarian cancer patients. Uh, We have, at the end of last year, four women who'd been on our treatment for over a year. And considering uh, how advanced their cancer was, to maintain disease control for that period of time was quite exciting. So it was a year of challenge. It was also a year of challenge in terms of allowing the workforce to deal with the emotional upheaval that arose from George Floyd's murder and the rise of the Black Lives Matter movement. And for me, as a older white male, I've always had a a deep abiding view that we are all created equal and everyone should have an equal opportunity to achieve to their fullest potential took me some learning to understand that that vision is not enough and that there are elements of systemic racism in our society that preclude that from being fully realized by everyone. And that as a business leader, it was important for me to lean in, to have that awareness, to have that dialogue within our company, and to make sure that we were doing everything to give everybody that equal opportunity that I hold as a fundamental part of who we are as a people and what the American democracy is all about. And it's hard enough to do that face-to-face, where you can see individuals and you can make a personal impact on them. Zoom is just not a good vehicle for that, but we found ways to lean in. We found ways to have dialogue. We found ways to make sure that our company felt the mission of Sutro, the mission to make cancer a more livable disease, to extend life and extend it in a way that has good quality of life, but to do so in a way that each and every employee feels like they are fairly treated, given opportunities for advancement, and feel like they're able to give their personal best each and every day, regardless of their race, their ethnicity, their sex, their gender, how they self-identify. None of that stuff matters. And so that, you know, is a process that we had to lean into during the pandemic and continue to lean into. And I'm pleased with the way our company has embraced the challenges of the pandemic and the challenges of being better as individuals and as a company. And that's um, been an important achievement for us last year. And I look forward to continuing that work this year and beyond.
Well, thanks for displaying leadership by talking about this critical topic openly. And of course, thank you so much for, for coming on the podcast today and all the exciting work that's happening at Sutro. Thank you so much. You know, our, our work is never done and it's never been more urgent for cancer patients. So I'm pleased to be here and be able to talk about Sutro Biopharma. Thank you so much for your time today and please stay safe. Thanks, Bill. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of Biotech 2050. This episode is hosted by me, Rahul Chaturvedi, edited and mixed by Megan Lovering. If you enjoyed this episode of Biotech 2050, please subscribe to our podcast and leave us a review. Also follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Biotech2050pod. Again, that's Biotech2050pod. Until next time.